0: Indigo snakes are just so impressive to see in the wild. It's just like this beautiful, huge, glowing snake. They're just awesome. And you just know
1: how powerful they are. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Shirts are now available on portcitypythons.com for our fundraiser for Michelle's organization, the Orient Center for Indigo Conservation. So please check out portcitypythons.com. It is on our homepage, and you'll see it right when you get there. Every shirt, all the proceeds go to OCIC. So thank you guys so much for checking it out, and thank you guys for listening. Today, we have Michelle Hoffman of the Orient Center for Indigo Conservation, so Michelle, could you give us just a little overview of what you do and the organization?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you for um, doing an awesome fundraiser. It's it, The shirt is really cool. Um, so I'm excited to kind of see it get put out there. Um, but yeah, so my name is Michelle Hoffman. I am the director of the Orient Center for Indigo Conservation. I've worked out here since about early 2016, late 2015, I don't remember the exact date. Um, but so I've been out here for a couple of years and kind of worked my way up into this position um, at the OCIC. Um, I actually was a Central Florida Zoo employee before I transferred out to the Conservation Center. Um, so the OCIC, the Orient Center for Indigo Conservation is the Captive Propagation Center for the Eastern Indigo Snake Reintroduction that's taking place here in the Southeast. Um, and so the, the the property and the buildings and everything, that was all founded and started by the Orient Society, which is a conservation organization um, doing a lot of work with imperiled species and habitat protection um, throughout the Southeast. And in 2014, they were looking for an additional funding partner. And so they asked the zoo, Central Florida Zoo, to step in and help them out with that. And so since 2014, the Central Florida Zoo has been funding the OCIC 100%. So um, many of the veterinary stuff, all the staff, um, keeping the lights on, you know, that kind of stuff, it's all done by the Central Florida Zoo.
1: And now, the animals that you are keeping, where are they relocated to? And how does that work exactly?
0: So the um, primary indigo snake uh, colony, our broodstock, or our founder colony, actually all came from um, about eight counties in southeast Georgia. So there were gravid females that were collected in southeast Georgia. Um, They went to Auburn University and laid their eggs. And some of those animals that were hatched out from those eggs were released in um, southern Alabama in the Connecticut National Forest. And then the other animals were sent to Zoo Atlanta for, you know, head starting or whatever, and um, and to the OCIC to start this brood stock. So we have, you know, a, a sig- significant portion of our brood stock that came from Southern Georgia, and then we have a handful of animals. I think I think we're at three animals that were um, either confiscations or um, rehab animals from throughout Florida, mostly um, Central and South Florida. And there are only three of them. So, um, and so we use those animals for breeding and releasing as well. Um, the two release sites that we have right now are Southern Alabama, which is the Connecticut National Forest, and um, the Panhandle of Florida, which is the Apalachicola Bluffs and Ravines Preserve. Uh, so those are the two that we have now. And, uh, you know, eventually as the program expands and more animals come into the program for breeding and we can produce more offspring, uh, we'll hopefully start off some more reintroduction sites for, for the indigo snakes.
1: Cool. Now, notoriously, young snakes don't survive very well, especially, you know, right out of the egg or something like that. So do you guys have any numbers as far as success rate, you know, maybe after a year or so?
0: Um, So exact numbers, not really. So um, we can expect that animals in the first year of release were probably going to have like a 50 percent mortality rate right around it. Um, And then the survival goes up after that first year. They're kind of acclimating. They're finding these, um, you know, the proper refugia and things to use out in the wild. Um, And they're just kind of, you know, getting the feel for being a wild snake. Um, so usually by the second year, they've kind of figured it out a little bit more. So if they survive that first year, um, the odds go up for survival for that second year and third year and so on. Um, so exact numbers, not necessarily. Um, there have been a, a, quite a few radio telemetry studies that have gone on with the indigo snakes. The, the initial release in the Kaneka National Forest, there were um, students at Auburn University that were doing the radio telemetry work at that time. And so you can kind of see why the animals are dying in some cases or um, kind of what's going on, where they're moving, how far they're moving, the type of land that they're using, things like that. Uh, And then the Florida release, which we only just started in 2017, um, another student from Auburn University, uh, Sarah Piccolomini was doing the radio telemetry work on uh, with those snakes. And we, we learned some interesting stuff from that, too. And obviously, it's, it's, she's still working on her master's uh, thesis and things like that. So um, that, that information is not published at this time. But, um, you know, one of the snakes, for example, was eaten by an alligator. And we would have never expected that. So it's, it's interesting. We're learning a lot about them uh, just from the radio telemetry that's been done and um, continuing to monitor them.
1: That's awesome. So I guess talking about the opposite end of the spectrum... They're obviously being eaten by alligators, but what are they eating in the wild?
0: Well, we um, we know that indigo snakes eat other snakes. So they're Ophiophagus or snake eaters, um, and they prefer snakes over any other food item. So uh, we actually partnered with uh, Auburn University, a researcher there, on a prey preference study where he found, um, Scott Getz found that Eastern indigo snakes prefer snake prey over other prey items, for example, mice or rats. Um, and then on top of that, they prefer pit vipers over any other snake species So, or, or types of snakes. So we know that they eat snakes in the wild. We know that they prefer pit vipers. And we know out of the pit vipers, they actually prefer copperheads. So... Uh, a couple of days after the release, it, both in Alabama and in Florida, their indigo snakes have actually been found um, eating copperheads in the wild. And, you know, after not having been exposed to other snake, you know, prey here, for copperheads, for example, it's pretty cool that they get released and they knew exactly what to do. They knew that that copperhead was what they wanted to eat. So uh, we know that they eat snakes. Um, they'll also eat, you know, amphibians lizards uh they can eat there actually have been some document documentation of eastern indigo snakes uh eating hatchling gopher tortoises so they're generalists they'll pretty much eat anything that moves in front of them but they prefer snakes
1: and those gopher tortoises they form kind of a symbiotic relationship right
0: yeah, yeah. It's a little bit more important for eastern indigo snakes to have to be exposed to these um gopher tortoise habitats and gopher tortoise burrows specifically in the northern part of the range where it gets a little bit colder. So the indigo snakes will actually go down into the gopher tortoise burrows when it gets too cold to overwinter. So usually in the winter time, that's when the snakes are breeding and gravid, and so they'll go down into these gopher tortoise burrows and they'll hang out in there um, while it's getting cold. And then during the day, when the sun's out, they can come right out and they'll bask like on the apron of the burrow or real close by. So that way, if a predator comes up, they can actually shoot right back down the gopher tortoise burrow. So if you find an indigo snake by gopher tortoise burrow. Um, Obviously, with permits, it's really hard to catch them. Um, you, you kind of have to really know what you're doing in some in some cases. So,
1: and now, does that make them? I know that they still have a very large range, but does that make them a little bit harder to find still?
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Detectability with indigo snakes is extremely low. You know, there are these records throughout the range of of indigo snakes, just reports from people seeing them submitting photographs or even shed skins. And so, you know, we know that there's an indigo snake in this area. There's a, here is a shed skin. We're literally have it in our hands. It's here and you can go back for a week straight every day. And you're probably not going to see it. So it's really hard to find them. They're um, pretty cryptic there and even for such a big snake it's surprising how hard it is to spot them in, in a lot of cases um there was actually a time that i was helping out with some of the radio telemetry up in the panhandle and um they, we were, we were tracking the snake and we're getting the signal, Like, man, the snake is right here. And it was kind of at the bottom of a, of a little ravine. And the snake was literally right in front of us and just coiled up and we just walked right past it. So even for a big snake and you think black, like it's going to stand out, it's shiny, you know, it's, it's not that easy to find them.
1: And were you, before you got um, into this project. Were you into indigo snakes in particular?
0: Yeah, I've always had an interest in them just because they're native and they're huge. Um, <laughs> so I was always very impressed with them. I knew a lot of people wanted them and I was kind of, you know, interested in that side. You know, there, there are a lot of people out there, even like zoos, aquariums, education centers and private individuals that just they're very desirable. And that kind of intrigued me a bit. I'm like, why does everybody want the snake? And I started working with them and I was like, okay, I get it now. You know, they're, they're super docile. They're always moving. They're, um, they're, they're so active and just different clubrids. Their, their behaviors are, I always kind of say their behaviors are a lot like cobras in a way. They're always kind of like crawling around and foraging and Um, They kind of will bow up a bit and bluff at you. Um, So I just have always been a bit interested in them because of that. Um, But I've always been extremely passionate about reptiles and amphibians too. Um, You know, I got a job at the zoo uh, in, I guess it was 2010, with the intentions of working with reptiles because I I became pretty fascinated and also kind of addicted to them.
1: (laughs) Now, do you? What or what other animals have you worked with reptile-wise in your zoo experience?
0: Um, so the Central Florida Zoo actually at one point was recognized as having the largest venomous reptile collection in the, in the state of Florida. Um, as far as zoos go, AZA zoos. Um, obviously, venom labs and stuff, their collections are massive. But... Um, so, at the zoo, I worked a lot with, I mean, all different types of rattlesnakes. We had, you know, Aruba Island rattlesnakes, diamondbacks, of course. Um, we had Mexican pygmy rattlesnakes, um, just a handful of different, you know, animals, and then a elapids, just a handful of elapids. We had... Um, East African and West African green mambas, uh, red spitting cobras, and an Egyptian cobra. So I got a lot of my handling experience from that. And then um, I also kind of branched out from that and, and worked with some friends on uh, getting some more lapid experience too. So uh, yeah, so the, the, the zoo collection was
1: pretty diverse. And very hot in comparison to what you're working with now.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. now we just have a handful of native venomous species. And some people ask me, you know, does that get boring? And I'm like, you don't know indigo snakes, do you? <laughs> it's it's never a dull day with the indigo snakes. They're they're odd.
1: <laughs> now, with like 90 percent of people listening would love to see an indigo snake in the wild and haven't gotten the opportunity, what is it like to find one out in its natural habitat?
0: Um, so I've only really helped out with the radio telemetry a handful of times. Um, and like I said, they're really hard to come by. So the Orient Society actually does like seasonal surveys in Southeast Georgia and just coming across an indigo snake is just like this exhilarating experience. I mean, I kind of get that way with a lot of snakes. I, you know, I guess black racers are probably the only ones I don't get super excited for at this point, but, um, Indigo snakes are just so impressive to see in the wild. It's just like this beautiful, huge, glowing snake. It's They're just awesome. And you just know how powerful they are. Um, their jaws are just it's very strong. Their body and their muscles are just... You know, really, really strong. So the fact that they can just grab onto like a prey item, just start crushing it and eating it alive is just is pretty impressive. And knowing that and seeing it just kind of sitting there is, is uh, it's um, eye opening. It's, it's a bit humbling, I guess you could say.
1: Yeah, I think even people who keep snakes or don't keep something Drymarcon or Pichuophus do something similar to where I've seen mine, like I fed it live once and I don't do it anymore because it will, it just like put it up against the side of the enclosure and it didn't constrict it, it just like smothered it like that and yeah. then just ate it. I was like, this is gnarly. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And indigo snakes do something kind of similar to that. You know, pine snakes are used to like, Oh, let me catch a pocket gopher. And then you just like press it with their body and their muscles and just kind of like squash it against the side of a burrow or a log or something like that. And indigo snakes kind of do that too. Um, usually they will kind of use a coil and put it over top, like the side, uh, over top of the um, prey item and just start chewing. You know, they usually when they grab on, it's only a matter of seconds before they start working the, it back into their throat and um, actually swallowing it. I found some really cool videos, they were sent to me of indigo snakes eating copperheads, and um, it's just insanely impressive, Um, the ability to just grab on, and while that snake is writhing and things in its jaws, it's just still, it's unfazed and it's just eating it, like, oh, you're funny, you know, you're cute.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They are obviously like such powerful animals, such amazing animals to see, but how are they in peril in, in you know, within their natural range?
0: Yeah, well, the, their range has shrunk significantly. Um, they used to be found in Georgia, for, throughout Florida, peninsula, and in the Panhandle, Alabama, and Mississippi. And if you look at you know maps over time with like these indigo snake sightings and records, you'll actually see that the the, the range has completely shrunk from the western portion. Um, so they're extirpated from Alabama, they're extirpated from the Panhandle, and um, there was actually a, a time when South Carolina recognized eastern indigo snakes as a native species, and it wasn't until. Uh, about, I think it was 2009 that they took them off of their native species list because they don't—they actually found, you know, that the the one or two records that were from there were kind of like uh, unverified records. So, um, yeah, so you know, just knowing that their range is already kind of small, and then you know, destruction of the the ecosystem, the longleaf pine ecosystem um, throughout portions of their range, it's just impacted them significantly. Um, you know, the decline of gopher tortoises also is a big impact um, on them because they utilize the burrows. Um, so yeah, but you can just kind of see over time that their range has completely pushed only into the eastern eastern portion of the range. Um, and even in those areas, they're they're not abundant at all by any means.
1: And they are in the longleaf pine forest, correct?
0: yeah yeah they do utilize a lot of different environments you know you can find them like coastal dune habitat and then you know a lot of times you could find them even in like orange groves and um you know there are there are a lot of different habitats that they use um but specifically those high dry sandy habitats are really well known for indigo snakes
1: and what are the kind of things obviously habitat destruction that that kind of thing but what is happening to basically get enough land to put these animals on in the first place
0: so the um first thing is that the you know you have to kind of monitor and survey for gober tortoise burrows and gopher tortoises if there are not enough gober tortoises there to make the burrows then um, the release site becomes a little bit less um I guess qualified. Um, and then, you know, habitat restoration. So the area where they're releasing Florida is actually, um, the Nature Conservancy's property who they do a ton of work in conservation and restoration. And so that property has been completely restored back into this, you know, a lot of wire grass and pines. Um, and there's a, a pretty wide variety of habitats that they can use there too you know they can be in the uplands for the winter and they can go right down into the floodplain in the summer if they want to which is pretty a pretty neat dynamic to see how they're actually utilizing that landscape um, th- throughout the seasons. Um, and then, of course, um, making sure that the habitat is maintained with fire. You don't want it to be really overgrown and um, just completely out of control. So that's another thing that the Nature Conservancy does a really good job at doing is just making sure that the habitat is is burned regularly and controlled um, in order to give indigo snakes a proper environment.
1: Yeah. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Because like, I guess to most folks, it seems like people are just lighting the woods on fire.
0: <laughs> um, fire is good. Fire is good. That's a good, I should just put a period at the end of that fire is good. Um, you know, we have a tendency to see something on fire and get scared and put it out because it's dangerous and it's hot and it's destructive. Um, but when you have fire in a natural environment in order to ma- maintain an ecosystem, it's a great thing. Um, you know, a lot of times fire would light naturally by lightning. Um, and so if that's not happening or you're um, not able to maintain that yourselves, then you can add a lot of fuel. So if you, if you let fire, um, or if you um, kind of don't have fire for a long time, you have a lot of fuel that's growing in that area. So a lot of the vegetation and the understory is getting really, really thick and there's a lot of fuel. And that's when fire becomes dangerous because if that lights up, you could just completely destroy everything because it's so hot and it burns so quick and it just takes off and it's really hard to control that. Um, I'm by no means a fire expert, um, but understanding the importance of fire for um, different species is is really important. Um, We also have a colony of striped newts here that we use for repatriation uh, programs and Imagine a little animal like a straight new, It's a tiny little salamander that goes from like ephemeral wetlands and up into the uplands. If there's a lot of vegetation that's that's just thick, they'll never be able to leave. They'll not be able to transfer and uh, and actually uh, mobilize through that area into the uplands when it's all overgrown. So, in those those situations, fire is extremely important for the survival of the species. <laughs>
1: and now i guess the indigo snakes the other species of snakes everything they're just retreating back into gopher holes and stuff like that
0: yeah yeah exactly they can go underground um it gets a little bit dangerous if they can't find a place to get underground of course um that's for any animal if there's fire and they can't escape it then that's that's not very good um so another reason why gopher tortoise burrows are important and you know, they'll utilize like armadillo burrows and other small mammal holes as well. If anywhere that they can get underground, that's a that's a good spot for an indigo, uh, which also makes them hard to find and study because most of the time when you're out tracking them or you're looking for them, they're underground. Um, they are susceptible to overheating just in the regular, you know, natural Florida sun. Um, and so if they get too hot, then that that's a you know possible life sentence for them so they need to have like a gober towards burrow or an armadillo burrow or a hole to get underground even just to escape the sun so it's important
1: and now you explained a little bit before the show when we were talking that it is egg season so give us a little rundown of what you guys are doing at this moment
0: uh we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off (laughs) um no we so we go through these seasonal cycles um usually breeding starts in october and continues through january uh and then they go into you know this Period of just they're kind of coming out of their little burrows that we make for them, and they're basking in the sun like they would do in the wild. Um, And then usually beginning in March, they start laying their eggs. Um, We usually don't get our first clutch until the end of March, but this year um, actually we got our first clutch about a week and a half ago, which is a bit early. Um, So they'll lay eggs from March through May, and then those eggs start start hatching out usually in June. So we have these outdoor enclosures where we're keeping a lot of our adult animals that we're breeding and so we can actually pair the males with other males in those outdoor units to combat it's a natural behavior they would do that in the wild. Um, And so we'll actually pair the males up and they'll kind of like fight and combat and Then we'll put the male in with one of the females for breeding um, directly afterwards. And we don't always do the combating, but it's kind of interesting to see those behaviors. Um, So we put the male in with the female, usually within the first, uh, I'd probably say an hour, maybe less. You can tell if they're even interested in each other. Usually the male will start following around the female. The female will either be receptive or, you know, get really mad at them and run away or try to bite them. Um, and so, you know, they'll breed and, uh, use that takes anywhere from an hour to 15 hours. And, um, So we'll pair them up like that, we'll separate them when they're done, and then we kind of just wait for the females to lay their eggs. And they usually try to give them a handful of nest sites. So they're in outdoor enclosures, they're sand as substrate, and then it's kind of planted up. There's some grasses and some trees and shrubbery in there. And um, we'll, you know, dig holes just randomly. We'll just dig like arm, arm depth holes and put some leaf litter in there and just leave it and just see if she's even interested in going down there. Um, and then we also have these makeshift gopher tortoise burrows where the snakes can go in through an opening, go underground and into a cooler that you can open up the top of the cooler um, to get visuals or collect eggs or whatever it might be. And um, so they might use that to lay their eggs. They might use the hole. They might use, um, they might dig their own spot. You know, a lot of times they'll dig up under anything we put in there and lay their eggs there. Um, So it's a lot of just uh, monitoring body condition in the females. And you can tell when that female's laid eggs because she is drained. Um, Obviously very thin. Their eggs are huge. Um, so she's pretty thin, and uh, you can usually tell right away when she's laid those eggs. We will collect them, uh, we put them in little incubation boxes, and incubate them for a hundred days.
1: Wow! So that's a lot longer than a lot of colubrid species and python species. Yeah, yeah, are-
0: yeah. They're, they're, I'm telling you, they're outliers in almost everything that they do. We uh, we observed, you know, digging behaviors and things. You know, a lot of times you say, oh, the indigo snake, they live in gopher tortoise burrows, and like, yes, they do, but did you know that they also live in root systems of different grasses and other vegetation, that they'll actually dig down into that spot themselves with their nose, um, so keeping them in the environments that we do, we're able to observe these behaviors that, from because it's such a secretive species in the wild, we would never know, so it's, it's pretty neat, you know, it's very entertaining. There's never a dull moment. We're always watching them.
1: Well, speaking of entertaining, I mean, putting them together, combating, and then pairing them with females. These are obviously snake eaters. Are you ever worried that they're going to eat each other?
0: Uh, Yeah. Yeah. It's extremely nerve wracking. It's one of the scariest parts of um, the seasonal changes that we go through because you never know if they're, you know, just a snake randomly is, has a feeding response and goes up and bites them, and that has happened before. Um, it happens in the wild. You know there are actually uh, some photos that I've seen of male combat wounds on you know a neck of a ma- another male, and um, it's pretty intense. You know they're strong and they're biting because they want nothing to do with that other snake, and they're being you know you know territorial over that other snake. And um, so, yeah, it's always a concern. And usually you can kind of tell, especially after you did it, you know, be it for a couple of seasons, you can kind of tell the behaviors that the snakes would exhibit to know if that's going to happen. So they're kind of, you know, you put them together. As soon as they see each other, they usually start approaching and they'll start, you know, intertwining with one another. And so they're using all this muscle and they're breathing really heavily because they're exerting so much energy. And a lot of times they'll kind of like they'll be pressed like this against each other and then they'll like pull like slip. And, you you know, sometimes the male hits the side of the enclosure or branch or the ground and you hear this thud and you just tell how much energy and how strong that they are. Um, and if that goes on for too long and one of the males gets really exhausted, a lot of times that is when you start to see this little mouth opening here and there or the male kind of aligning its head on the neck of the other male and slowly kind of opening its mouth. Um, there are definitely a handful of times where I've had to jump in between two snakes, you know, put my arm in between and then make sure that they're, you know, not going to bite each other and just separate them. But it does happen.
1: Wow. So do they have in the wild, do they have kind of ranges or do they encounter each other often? Or is that kind of a males during the breeding, breeding season type of thing?
0: Um, typically, you know, what I know of indigo snakes behavior in the wild during breeding season, um, it's kind of, it's kind of known that during the winter time, when the animals are going up to try to find places to overwinter, which are in these sandhill habitats, they're kind of all congregating into the sand environment. And so because there's not a whole lot of that, a lot of times that's why the indigo snakes will start to encounter each other. And the males will combat there and breed with the females in that environment. So yeah, you know, the the animals will encounter each other just during the seasonal um, phase that they're going through for combat and breeding. And then usually they kind of disperse because it's like, okay, we don't need to be up here anymore. Let's just you know, leave and go find her own spot. Um, You know, indigos make these gigantic movements. They, there have been indigo snakes that have been recorded almost 14 miles, uh, you know, movement, a 14 mile movement over about a two year span. So that is a huge range for a snake in North America. So Um, Yeah, usually it's kind of like they're moving to try to find other snakes and to try to find, you know, females to breed with and they'll make interpopulation movements, too. So that's why, you know, you can have a male that was in one population and three years later, he's over in another completely different area with a new, you know, interacting with different females. So, yeah, they they move around a whole lot and they do encounter each other from time to time.
1: So I can imagine with that much movement. I mean the land is so important and not having that uh, basically their habitat broken up and having enough room for the the males to to operate in would be important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The one of the biggest problems, you know, habitat fragmentation is one of the biggest reasons for the Eastern Indigo snakes decline. And um, you know, we build roads and highways and subdivisions and shopping centers. And those are all huge challenges for a big snake, like an indigo snake, any snake, any, any small animal, it's going to be challenged by that. Um, but with the indigo snakes, case, they're, they're really big. And, you know, a lot of people don't like snakes. I'm sure you know that. Um, and they kind of get a bad rap. And when somebody sees a big snake crossing the road, I don't, I don't expect and i've not heard of many people you know besides reptile lovers that will stop and wait for it to cross the road Uh, most of the time the animals in those areas are getting hit by cars and so yeah when the roads go in it's a it's a big problem for mortality but you know it causes a lot of mortality with indigo snakes um but other other species too
1: yeah of course so i believe it was two days ago Previously, there was an issue as far as people considered or someone came up with a paper that basically considered the indigo to be two separate species. So I believe like the species that would be in the western part of Florida would be one and then an the eastern part of Florida and the north would be another. I don't know if you can clarify that and then obviously the rebuttal that came just a couple of days ago on that paper.
0: Yeah, so there was a paper published, actually two papers, published in um, 2016. Um, one of them was just explaining, you know, why there might be two species of eastern indigo snake. Um, and, you know, it kind of outlined that with the water level changes and different glacial intervals throughout history, that it, it's possible that the indigo snakes became two isolated populations. Um it was really interesting and it was actually a really cool study and um, there was a lot of really neat you know, information in, in there. And then as a result of that paper, um, it was actually published uh, shortly after that, there, they were actually listing a new species of indigo snake. Um, that was um, dry mark on copal basileus. And I, I feel like I'm saying that name wrong every time I say it, because it just doesn't roll off the tongue easily. Um, so yeah, that that came out in 2016, and so it kind of struck up this conversation of well, what kind of impacts does that have on the reintroduction program? Because if that's the case, um, you know we need to be reevaluating our reintroduction program, and so um, you know further research was done, and um, one of the things with. It used different methods to evaluate the DNA of these two populations of indigo snakes. Um, and so with the more modern, um, or with, I can say modern, with the newer uh, study, it was actually, there was mitochondrial DNA that was analyzed, and there was also nuclear DNA. And the thing with mitochondrial DNA is it's only passed down by the mother, so it's maternal. Um, and so the nuclear DNA has more of like a broader Im- implication and, and actually um, will represent Uh, DNA from both parents. And so um, it was kind of expected that we were going to see an overlap in a lot of the same information, um, you know, crossing between these two lineages because of that. And, you know, it it was expected mainly because they use different landscapes, they use different environments. And so there aren't really a lot of barriers that indigo snakes can't cross. They travel long distances, they can go in and out of ridges, they can cross fresh and salt water for pretty long distances. Um, So these geographical barriers didn't really, it didn't really make much sense that they would restrict the indigo snake. Um, And then also with only analyzing the mitochondrial DNA that's only passed down by the mother, the the females don't make as large of movements as the males do. Um, The males make really, really large movements. And so you can expect that that male's genetics and that male's DNA is going and spreading throughout all these populations. So um, it makes sense that they're more intermingled than what the original paper, um, you know, kind of led people to believe. So, um, you know, that was... It's really cool. I love looking into this kind of stuff, and I think it's really important that science is always changing, especially you know taxonomy. Looking at taxonomy, new species are always being discovered, and I think that it's a uh, it's really interesting. Um, but studies like that that are splitting a species with significant conservation um, you know implications can be really dangerous to a snake. Um, you know, it's a federally protected species. They're threatened. And you split that one species into two and now you're working with much smaller populations and you have to learn, you know, you kind of have to go through all the loops, uh, come through all the hoops and things to figure out what you're going to do with regulation. And then on top of that, once you do figure it out, how are you going to get all these snakes into your colony to in order to produce for you know these two separate species so it caused a lot of stir um you know for obvious reasons so if this newer paper this this one that was just published a couple of days ago um was a huge win for us um as far as being able to continue our conservation work and a huge win for the indigo snake i think um, in order to continue putting animals out there without any sort of concern that we're, you know, mixing these two lineages.
1: Did that change the way you operated for that period of time?
0: Um, so it did briefly, it actually caused some some stir. It, I guess I can't say it changed the way we operated. We continued to go on, but we also understood that if we reevaluated that study and found exactly what what he found in that paper, all the things that we were we were doing you know we would have to stop and completely change um so it didn't necessarily change the way we operated except for it added a lot more work for the partners in the in the reintroduction program to do all this you know additional research but it's a good thing you know we should always be doing that so um it just caused a little bit of uh it caused like a brief period of panic and what like let's look into this and we've got to figure this out.
1: But as it stands right now that rebuttal states that for the time being it is one species though correct?
0: Correct yeah and so uh, it was actually it was on a, in a preprint. um it was actually posted up um just at the end of last year and um so that accessible to anybody. It's a public area where you can actually go on and read the paper before it gets published, but one of the problems is that at that point, it's not peer reviewed, so it doesn't go into a peer reviewed, um, you know, journal or or scientific publication. And so until you get to that point, it usually is not readily accepted by the science community. So um, that's why it was, we were really excited when we we got it published. Um, Yeah, so as it stands. Um, at this point, being in a peer-reviewed journal, we can we can go with the, the theory of it being one species.
1: Okay, great. So it seems like this is an uncommon animal, also in a way that there is genetic diversity being that the male can go so far.
0: I'm sorry, can you say that one more time?
1: Yeah, it seems like this is uncommon amongst snakes. So a lot of snake species obviously don't have large ranges. There's probably a large amount of interbreeding. So it seems like they're very genetically diverse just kind of from nature.
0: Yeah, yeah, we we can definitely, um, you know, expect that the indigo snakes, because the males just move so far in between all these populations that they're spreading their genes around all of, all of the areas, you know, close to them. Um, and they are long lived, you know, I, so I uh, keep the stud book for the Association of Zoos and Aquariums for the indigo snake. And there was a record there, there were records in the stud book um, of indigo snakes that were almost 27 years old. So they can live a long time. And so you can imagine how far an indigo snake can travel in 27 years. Um, I, I can't imagine that they probably live that long in the wild, but you know, it's definitely possible knowing that if they can live that long in, in the captive environment, then obviously it's possible. So um, yeah, they can move a far, they can move long distances in that that amount of time. So
1: So obviously, we got a little bit off topic, but we were talking about the eggs before. So what happens, obviously, after that 100 days or so of incubation uh, from hatchling to reintroduction, that kind of stuff? What do you guys do?
0: Uh, So historically, we were actually raising them for two years um, before they get released. And that's because we were implanting the animals with radio transmitters. Um, so they had to be a certain size in order to receive the transmitters, because transmitters are not small. Um, and so we raise them for two years, we implant them with the transmitters, and then they, we would wait for them to shed a few times and heal up completely and then release them. Um, but we're actually discussing the possibility of releasing younger animals um you know there are kind of two sides to that there's one side that says you want to release them as soon as possible because you don't want them to be used to eating mice and chicks and fish and things that we give them here at the ocic but then there's the other side where it says well you do want to raise them up because they're going to be bigger and they're going to have a better chance of survival as a bigger snake um so, you know, that's something that's kind of an ongoing discussion that we're having. And all everything that we do is regulated by the state and the federal government. We have FWC and we have U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service that regulate everything that we do. And so if we decide to go a different route and release them at a younger age, it you know, it would just be some permanent amendments and things like that that we need to get. Um, but it's it's a bit of preparing, you know. So we can't just say, oh, well, this year, let's decide to release hatchlings and just go ahead and do it. It's a lot of checks and balances that go on. Um, so right now, as it stands, we raise them for two years and then release them. And in that two-year span, pretty much um, they hatch out. Uh, we put them into a rack system, and um, we just start feeding them. And you know They shed. usually after their first shed. We start feeding them. It's usually like a little mosquito fish or a little tiny trout. Um, we feed them quail chicks. We feed them chicken chicks. We feed, feed them mice and rats. Um, and so we just kind of get them started on on feeding. And baby indigo snakes can be a bit difficult to feed sometimes. As adults, they're pretty ravenous, but as babies, they can be a little bit. Difficult. Um, so we raise them up and we keep them, you know, like usually in rack systems or in like vision cages, bigger vision cages. Um, and then typically we try to move them outside for at least a couple of weeks before they get released. And it usually depends on the weather and space that we have here, but it's almost like we're giving them almost like a soft release in a way because we're putting them into the environment so they can, you know, learn these predator responses and sense the natural environment and experience the, the temperature changes and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, usually after, you know, a couple of weeks of being outside, it's ready for release or, you know, it's up to the release date that we've chosen. And then we transport them, we measure where them, um, they're all pit tagged, um, and them out and hope for the best.
1: (laughs) Now, is there mindfulness in the way of not being too hands on with them? Is there anything that you, you know, you may be afraid to get them, you know, accustomed to humans or anything like that?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, we have a big collection of indigo snakes, so we can't really be too hands-on with any individual anyways, because we just don't have time to handle all of, you know, every snake and play with them every day, you know. Um, even if we could, that's not something that we would, we, 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 we would definitely try to avoid that. Um, and the the thing is, is that a lot of indigo snake, or even just dry mark on breeders or Or keepers know is that they're so messy. They're extremely messy, and so every animal at the OCIC gets seen every single day and cleaned if it needs to be cleaned and changed its water. You know, water changed every day, um, you know, as needed. So that's about as hands-on as we get. The animal is, and usually we don't even pick the animal up when we're doing that. We just work around the animal and kind of get it into like a section of its enclosure, work around it, and then. close it back up. So that's about as hands-on as we get, unless there's like a veterinary procedure that we're doing or anything like that. So yeah, we try to keep it, keep it, you know, minimum handling. And if we do need to handle them, it's definitely not like we're taking it out to put it around our necks or anything like that.
1: Yeah, I just figured I would ask that question even though a lot of people who breed or keep snakes, you know, we do realize to the extent that these are not domesticated animals and especially if you're messing with a lot of rarer stuff, they may have the same attitude no matter what you do, no matter how hands-on you try to be. They're yeah. going to act like a snake. So
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a that's a I mean, I think a lot of reptile people that that work with snakes Understand that um, that there's always a chance that there's one day that it's going to be hungry and it could you know turn around and bite you or you know you have to just kind of react to the animal itself and each one is has a different temperament too. Um, I was I was just talking to somebody the other day about how you don't realize how you know you've, how much you've learned working with reptiles over the years or you know in the, any amount of time until you see somebody who's never touched a snake or never been around reptiles work with the snake um, because usually you can pick up right away that their movements are not as you know calm or maybe not as smooth as somebody who's been working with them for a long time um, it's just kind of an interesting thing, like, how much you learn just from having a snake in your hand and just from observing them even. Um, but, yeah, it's we understand that they're wild and they need to be, you know, stress-free so that they are more likely to, to breed and lay eggs and um, survive in the wild. So,
1: Do you or have you enjoyed getting more into, obviously, you're propagating animals and that's probably your main focus. So has it been interesting kind of delving more into breeding?
0: Yeah. Yeah. We didn't do, um, too much breeding when I was at the zoo. So, um, switching over into the OCIC, um, I was, there was a lot of learning, you know, in the beginning. And, um, I don't know. Have you ever seen an indigo snake egg? No. They're big they're very big i wish i had one in here i'm looking around to see if i have one but they're uh they're really big and they're extremely rough they're like sandpaper on their shells um black racers have that texture also and um coach whoops i believe also have that texture to their eggs and so just when i saw that you know i've I read florida pine snakes before and that was pretty much my my experience with native breeding of reptiles And um, just seeing that egg was like, is this normal? You know, is this how it's supposed to look? Because this looks like there's something wrong with it. You know, it's got these bumps all over it. And um, so, yeah, I've learned a lot um, from breeding indigo snakes. And also, you know, there are a lot of challenges. We see some egg retention from time to time. And, you know, it poses a lot of questions. Do we, you know, are the eggs being retained because of that texture, or the eggs being retained because of a fertility problem with the female or with the male, possibly. Are they being retained because a lack of moisture when they're down in their gopher tortoise burrows or in our environments here? Are they not, you know, do they not have access to enough moisture to help pass those eggs? Um, So there are a lot of different little kind of like micro studies that we're doing here to look into those types of things. Uh, which makes it, it, that's why keeping a colony of a lot of indigo snakes is really beneficial because we are able to see these trends and then say, well, this is odd. Let's, you know, ask around and let's, you know, try to figure this out. Um, so yeah, there's, there definitely, there's always something to learn. And, um, there is, there are a lot of, there's a lot of potential for different kind of research experiments and things here.
1: And are you guys temperature, humidity wise, are you using like your natural environment or do you have supplemental heating and stuff like that?
0: We have the way that the um, buildings here were designed. There's actually a healthcare center, and in the healthcare center, there's three rooms there's like a quarantine room, and then we have another room which we use for education animals. We take off property and things like that. And then we have an incubation room where we actually all of those are on separate AC units. We have separate thermostats for each of those rooms, and so when they lay their eggs and put them in their incubation boxes, we can actually just put them in one of those separate rooms and regulate the temperature in there um, in order to incubate the eggs. Um, the only thing is that because it is like an air conditioning unit, um, we you know we have to make sure that the vent isn't blowing down on one clutch and not on the other one or vice you know whatever might be tweaking those environments for the eggs. So we actually just use a shower curtain and encase them like in this little like tent thing in order to um, kind of keep all the, the temperature and humidity kind of in this confined area. Um, so it looks like when you walk in you're like, wow, that's how you're incubating your eggs. And I'm like, yeah, and I'll tell you why it's working, you know? Um, so it's, it's kind of nice because we have a whole room. So as many eggs as we can get, (laughs) will go in that room and we have a lot of space. So it's, it's convenient.
1: And how many (laughs) clutches do you get a year or what do you expect this year? And also what's the average clutch size?
0: We, so it, it fluctuates, um, you know, one year there might be a female that is in poor health. It's maybe, I don't know, has dermatitis or a respiratory infection or, or whatever. It could be anything. Um, and so that will, you know, influence whether we decide to breed her or not. So we've had as few as when we first started to be like one, one uh, pair, you know, because we didn't have very many snakes, but we now we usually get about 14 or 15 breeding pairs and clutches um usually anywhere between six seven eggs we've had as many as 14 as few as one um and so and then you know there are different scenarios that impact the success of that too whether or not the eggs are fertile when they're laid Um, or they're retained we've never seen a retained egg that was actually that actually hatched so those types of things impact our success Um, as far as hatchlings we've had as few as 34 and as many as 67 so it's pretty a pretty wide gap Um, last year I think we had 50 so that's usually about standard
1: And is that something that you're currently trying to always ramp up the numbers of or is there a sweet spot?
0: Yeah, we're always trying to get more. So we actually, um, so we have this brood stock already. So we have all these adults that came from South Georgia and some in Florida. And we've actually started retaining some of the offspring that they've produced in order to get younger animals that are going to be, you know, possibly better breeders, maybe produce better clutches. Um, So we've actually retained a handful of animals specifically for that reason. And we'll do that, you know, retain a couple every year just to ensure that we're not, you know, creating this bottleneck of older animals that are, you know, aging out or in poor health or end up dying from unknown causes. And then left with, you know, oh, man, our whole broodstock colony is gone. So we're always thinking about that and replacing animals that, you know, die um, or become ill or whatever it might be with these younger animals. Um, And so, yeah, we're always trying to get more. Our goal is to release 30 animals a year at each release site. And so we have two release sites right now and so our goal is to produce 60 animals each year just for release and so if we want to retain animals we need to produce more than 60 hatchlings um so considering that the most hatchlings we've ever produced is are 57 uh, or is 57 where we haven't quite met our goal yet but i think with retaining more animals we're we're well on our way to getting there
1: yeah. And I was wondering how you choose. I mean, are you keeping back offspring? Are you trading with other zoos to get new bloodlines? Like how, how are you specifically, what is your method of getting new breeding stock?
0: Um, well, most of it is all you know retained offspring at this point. We have one female from Georgia. She Number four, her name is Luanne, and she is now an education animal, which why she is why she has a name. Um, and she's produced one offspring since she's been here. And so she's pretty important to our our colony, our collection. Um, or that one animal is really important to our colony. It's a male that she actually produced in 2014. And so he's definitely being retained because she's the only one that came from that one clutch from the wild. And so we consider her to be, you know, that that male that she produced to be a valuable animal. Um, And so we're retaining animals, um, you know, for reasons like that. And then just to bring to, to kind of increase our numbers to produce more eggs. Um, and now we also are partnering, where we have partnered with um, FWC and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in order to bring in more animals. So they actually keep records of all the Eastern indigo snakes that have been recorded in Florida and Georgia, um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service anyways. And um, uh, so they know where the indigo snakes are and where they they seem to be more prevalent. Um, I. never use the word abundant because they're not abundant really anywhere. And so if they have to remove an animal, an indigo snake from a construction site or an area that's being developed at all, we can get that animal. So that animal will be removed from that area and it will come to us and it will be used for the breeding program. Because a lot of times, you know, the rules in Florida right now are if you're working on a construction site and you see an indigo snake, all you have to do is stop working until you can't see it anymore. And then you can continue working. Um, and so, a lot of times, that results in an indigo snake that doesn't has no longer no longer has an environment to live in, and also a lot of times ends up being killed because maybe it's underground, maybe it's in a bush. You know, you don't really know, but you have to wait till the indigo snake leaves, and then you know it's out of sight, and then you can continue working. And so, those animals are valuable to us, um, and so we can bring those in for for breeding and re- reintroduction. Mm-hmm
1: now in a world that is seemingly only being more and more developed like what can we do to help this situation like the everyday person
0: yeah you know i am told by a lot of people buy land you know don't keep land and keep land good habitat you know protect the protect the environment um that doesn't really come easily to people in our field that we don't you know this is not a high-paying job (laughs) and so buying land that sounds magnificent if you have money (laughs) but um, as far as you know people that just in the community that can help um, I would definitely just like try to spread the word that indigo snakes are not bad snakes i mean i know snakes are bad snakes but a lot of times people consider you know venomous snakes to be scary or um i mean they're dangerous and so a lot of times we try to say you know oh indigo snakes eat venomous snakes if you have an indigo snake in your yard you're so lucky you you know you have that means you have a great habitat for it you probably live around an area that um is, is pretty good for an indigo snake to live in and so you can kind of always turn it into this positive experience for them. And usually people are very receptive to that. They're like, wow, I didn't realize I would, you know, I had this awesome snake that is on the endangered species list and that is so important to the environment. Um, and just kind of like spreading the word about the decline of the eastern indigo snake and why it needs protection and and why we should, you know, appreciate it is is one of the biggest things. Um, and then, you know, I, I guess just trying to volunteer time too. you know, a lot of people get into this field and go into working in conservation from volunteering their time. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, this is really cool. I love it. It's rewarding. And um, conservation organizations who don't have a lot of money coming in, they use volunteers a lot. And they're really important and they're really helpful. So, um, yeah, volunteering for different organizations is always
1: really helpful to, to whatever it is, the group. Awesome. So we made it to an hour. And I just wanted to ask one last thing. So with OCIC, what is, you know, your plans for the future? What is something that you hope that you can accomplish, you know, while you're in the position that you're in right now?
0: Um, I, I think one of the biggest things for me at this time, um, is expanding our Catholic propagation, um, like our brood stock and our colony. So. You know, I'm looking right now into getting some funding for building some more outdoor enclosures. I would love for all of our indigo snakes to be housed outside, Um, just even from a hatchling, just putting them directly from hatchling into an outdoor enclosure and monitoring their behaviors. And we could learn a lot from that. So one of my top priorities is to build some more outdoor enclosures. They're very expensive. But um, you yeah, know, that's that's a big goal for me. And I think it would really benefit the snakes and benefit the the research going in the the, you know, the the research going into the behavioral um The behaviors of the indigo snakes. Tongue twisted. Um, So, yeah, that's a big project for me. And then, you know, we have ramped up our education and outreach programming too. Uh, In the last year, we did actually in 2018, we did over 30 outreach events, um, whether it being bringing school groups into the OCIC or going and do presentations for different groups. Um, I think that's really important, uh, raising awareness about the project and making sure that people understand that there is a significant need um, to protect the species and you know make sure that you educate yourself about them. So that was another that's another goal is to keep ramping up our education and outreach um, and just you know spreading the word about indigo snakes and
1: the decline. So besides buying a t-shirt which all the proceeds will go to the OCIC, how can people check out what you're doing and how can they support you?
0: So, um, like I said, we're operated by the Central Florida Zoo, so supporting the Central Florida Zoo is awesome. It's very important. Like I said, a lot of their budget, actually more than what they are expected to give towards this project, is being given to this project. Um, So they do a lot of work towards conservation. They're one of the top contributors to conservation projects um, as far as AZA goes. Um, So yeah it's supporting you know Central Florida Zoo and then obviously you know if anybody's interested in learning more they can go to the Central Florida Zoo's website also to the Orient Society's website the Orient Society has a really great write up section about the OCIC how it came to be and then how it transferred you know in the partnership with the Central Florida Zoo um a lot of information on on their website um support us on Facebook and on Instagram i I operate our Instagram, and I'm terrible at it. I um, So bear with me. I'm learning. And I, I don't operate the Facebook because I, oh, if anybody's ever sent a Facebook message to the OCIC, you will know if I've responded because I will say, hi, so-and-so, and I'll push enter to go to the next line, and it will send so usually, usually all the responses that I send on Facebook, just say, hi, so-and-so comma, and it's just blank. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I'm not so good at that, but, um, yeah, the, the zoo helps out with that a lot. So, um, kind of just showing your support for us on there would be awesome. Um, and if anybody wants to donate to the OCIC, like a direct donation, um, you can send me an email, um, Michelle H M I C H E L L E H at centralfortezoo um, or send a check to the Central Florida Zoo um, and in the little section, just put that it's for the Indigo Project. And awesome. Get it.
1: So I want to thank everyone who joined us for listening, and if you're interested in the shirts, I will be putting up. I put in pre-orders last week, but I'm going to be putting up the live version tonight so that you guys can order them. They will be available the whole month of April. And so, yeah, let's raise some money for the OCIC, portcitypythons.com. And that'll be it, Michelle. Thank you so much for hanging out with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being flexible on meeting me so early, too, for our coffees. (laughs) I appreciate it. And yeah, thanks for the opportunity.
1: Well, what Um, everyone else doesn't know is that I showed up like a half hour late because I messed up my calendar. So
0: It's okay. (laughs) I still did it. I still made it. We're good.
1: Yeah, we did it.